411 of the Survival Podcast, and today we have Bobby Parr, I think is how I say her last name. We'll find out in a second if I got that wrong when we bring her on. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the work that she's doing up in Canada, building local resiliency in the food supply with her food-based business so that people have the power of local food. I'm calling this show Community Versus Collapse, this episode of the show anyway, I'm calling that, because that's what this is really all about, is building strong resiliency in your local food system. And we'll get on with that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Uh, we're definitely kind of going in the anarcho world today with what we're talking about. I know Bobby identifies with that philosophy, and one way we can do that is to take back our tech from big technology, because I don't know if you know this or not, but it's not just the people that build the apps that are responsible for stealing your data, your information, and tracking you. It's also the people that build the phone, and it's the phone companies themselves. You can make all of that go away with our sponsor, Above Phone. They have really great devices. You can pick your own operating system. They have a couple that you can choose from. When you get a new phone, they actually have a person that will walk you through how to use your new phone for over an hour on the phone. Really great service, really great devices. Uh, they're also coming out with uh, laptops very soon that will allow you to take back your technology on that level as well. Just a great company. Been working with them now for a few months. Very, very impressed with them. Uh, I've started using the above phone myself. I really like it. I love that even some of the apps that maybe are not in the open app system that they have, you can still use your standard apps off of like Google Play or the App Store or what have you. And you can basically wall those off so that they're only doing whatever they do when you allow them to and only within their own little sandbox. It's really awesome. You upgrade your phone and upgrade your experience at the same time with the Bove phone. And if you are an MSB member, you get 75 bucks off any of the phones available at AbovePhone.com. It's pretty freaking awesome. Next up today... We have BulkAmmo.com. These guys have been with us now, I guess, about eight or nine years. That's a long time in the world of podcasting. And I'll tell you what, they love you guys, and I know you love them because I hear from you all the time about one major thing, how fast the shipping is. It's kind of crazy. You order your ammo, and a day or two later, there's a knock at the door. It's the postman. You're like, what is that? And your ammo's here already. It's pretty badass. You know you can count on them to have all the common calibers and some of the not-so-common ones. Get that ammo in bulk because why? What happens when the gun grabbers start running their mouth, the gun-grabbing politicians? Is it the guns that disappear first? No. It's the magazines and the ammo. So stock up on that ammo. Stock up on those mags as well. Check them out today at bulkammo.com. And with that, I want to bring our special guest on, Bobby Parr. How you doing today, Bobby? I'm good. How are you, Jack? Great. I'm, I'm happy to have you with us. We're going to be talking, as I said, about the business you've created and the concept of building resiliency into our communities by having a strong local food supply. Before we get to that, though, let's do the you know elevator version of what is Bobby's background? Like, I'm sure when you were like in high school, spacing out study hall or whatever, you weren't like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be this anarchist chick out there growing food and selling it to my local community. You're probably going to do something else. You probably did something else. Almost everybody that comes on the show has a wonky path leading 
to actually getting to where they are, I bet you're no exception. No, I definitely was spacing out, though, in high okay. school, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you um, I grew up in northwestern Ontario. So where I am now is where I grew up. A lot of bush activity, like going out and just being recreational in nature, for sure. But nothing really self-sufficiency um, in my childhood. We had neighbors that all went hunting and fishing and that type of stuff, but it wasn't really part of my family. We went away to, I went away to university um, right after high school. I did recreation management and community development in Winnipeg. The reason that I chose that, I really had no idea what I wanted to do with it, but I knew that I didn't want to be working with people who didn't want to be where they were. So that's what I found is, you know, I had my first job when I was in grade nine, and I really didn't enjoy my workplaces because nobody wanted to be there and everyone was kind of toxic. And I figured if I go into, you know, something recreation, community, people are usually choosing to be where they are. So, you know, whether I put on an activity or where they're building something, uh, they want to be there. And I just wanted to be around that kind of an energy. So that's that's the path that I took. I, after university, went to Australia, had a little bit of debt from just partying in university. So <laughs> went and uh, did a working holiday. They had pretty much double the wage in Australia as we had here and definitely not double the living expenses. So I went and just took a job where I didn't have to pay any rent, paid off all my debt, saved up enough to travel for the last half, and then ended up back here in northwestern Ontario. Um, I met I met my husband a year after uh, I came back, and he was, both of us, he had come back from Ottawa, both of us were interested in kind of reconnecting with nature, and for him that was more about the self-sufficiency aspect, which I never really was a part of. So his background was a lot of fishing, hunting, trapping, gardening, preserving, that type of stuff. And mm. he he wasn't as deep into it as a lot of the other members in his family, but he had sort of regretted that as he was away in Ottawa. So he came back to try to reconnect with that. And that first summer together was incredible for us to be able to do that. It was hot every single day, rained every night, so we could just sit on the porch and play games and just think about how our gardens were growing. Uh, lots and lots of foraging that year. Blueberries and chanterelles were crazy and fishing every day. So we definitely did our reconnection with nature that summer. And then came fall and, um, you know, trapping, hunting, all of that type of stuff. And around that time is when somebody sent me a video. It was a Ron Paul video. Okay. And I don't, so even in Canada, Ron Paul was a thing around that time. Yeah. And uh, he it was just something basic, like economics, just how money worked or some, something like that. And I just thought to myself, how did I not know this? How did I, how have I like went 25 years in my life and haven't really realized that this is the way that money works and started sliding down the rabbit hole as people do. And usually I find, you know, Ron Paul did that for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm going to say 50% of my guests somewhere during this intro question invoke Ron Paul. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. more. So then I found this video by Ron Paul or somebody sent me a video by Ron Paul or I heard about Ron Paul. And I think that like that one person has had more impact on the liberty movement than any four put together. I really do, because there is no one else that I can think of that I hear, you know, half of all stories include Ron Paul. He just had a way of, of saying things that just kind of made you resonate, right? And realize lack that. of bullshit, right? It was just yeah. like this. And I think that's what it was. Like, you can have someone that is just as well presented as him, but they're not a politician. So you had a politician without bullshit, really rare. Yeah. Really rare. And then the back, like some of these guys, they talk a good game, but then the background to back it up. 
Like when you checked into him, like never took a junket on taxpayer dime. You know, n- not everything the man said, he stayed consistent with for 25 years in the house. Super and, authentic. Yeah, super, super authentic. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of in that story there about your background, that's kind of how you ended up in this homesteading lifestyle, but like a hunter's homesteading lifestyle, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. So it was, uh, you know, ended up in kind of a dark place after going <laughs> through the rabbit hole. And, uh, as, as a lot of people do, um, and I, the time that I really realized that a lot of what, or I thought kind of everything that I'd seen in the rabbit hole was true when I came across a video, which was obviously not right. Um, I came across a video of Rosa Quarry. I don't know if you know her. She was most famous for, um, exposing agenda 21 back around in the early two thousands. And she was talking about the encapsulation of the university system in Canada and it brought me immediately when I was watching that video, it brought me back to a time in university. I'm sitting in the auditorium and I'm our professor didn't show up. So I'm looking around everywhere. We're all confused as to why they didn't come. And it turns out that they were um, all of our professors were striking a big curriculum change. So in the community development, the core curriculum, they were toppling everything on its head. So when I went to university, it was all about the individual. It was all about grassroots change. If you're building community, you go in. And you figure out what those individuals needs, what they mm-hmm. want, um, what they want out of quality of life. And then you build things around them. And that's how I was trained. But what they were doing in this year, um, I was pretty much through my core curriculum at that point. But what they were doing is switching it to be more of a top down approach. So sure. being, yeah, these are the rules and regulations. This is how you build community. You need to hit like X, Y, Z. We need it to be sustainable. We need people stacked on top of each other. And it was just completely changing everything. I was in my 20s and self-interested, so I didn't think about it at that point because I figured, oh, well, I got the degree that they wanted me to have, so who cares? But in watching that and realizing, oh, my gosh, literally at that time um, is when they encapsulated my university system. You know, I saw that happening uh, in my career, not through school, but through like things like Chamber of Commerce and stuff like that. They would bring these people in and they would be talking about community development and all. And I remember asking the one guy, I said, so you want to be a zookeeper for people? He was not happy. Um, some of my fellow members of the committee that I was on that was that brought these people in were not happy with me. But I mean, it was, you know, they basically wanted people living where they worked and working where they lived and everybody crammed into these small, tight cities. And I didn't like it. But I just saw it as like one clown running his mouth. And then I was on a bunch of like in this was during the tech boom. So this is late 90s, early 2000s. And north central Texas was huge with technology companies like Alcatel and Lucent and Nortel and what have you. And uh, so all those cities that are up to Richardson and Allen, all this like I was in every chamber and they would all bring people in to talk. And they all talk the same game. And that's going back now all the way back then. And so when people tell me they think Agenda 21 or now 2030 is a conspiracy theory, I'm like, you know, there's a point where you stop calling things a conspiracy theory because they're sitting in front of you as fact. Yeah. And, and that's where we've gone with this. And it's it's it really is like a zookeeping thing for me. Or the other thing it really is, is and we've seen everything do this move from a decentralized world to a centralized world. So community development was exactly what you said. You go in and you create your own community. And this is resilient because you have thousands of them all acting in their self-interest, but cooperating where their interactive edge is. 
But this is, oh, we can't trust people to be decent, upstanding, and useful and helpful to each other. We need to create the conditions in which they have no choice but to behave the way that we want them to. And that's why I asked that dude, so you're trying to be a zookeeper for people, right? Yeah, exactly. It was all about that top-down control and them telling us how we're supposed to run our communities rather than our building our communities based on you know our own cultures and our own um, intricacies and the things that we value. So somewhere along the line in all of this, you found yourself out of a job, and then you had basically two things. Well, there's three things a person can do at that point. They can remain unemployed for the rest of their life. They can go find another job or they can create a business. And that's pretty much the, I don't, if somebody can come up with number four, let me know. Yeah. Um, I guess you could hybridize the business and the job, which is kind of how I got where I am. Um, but you have to make a decision. And most people go with get your resume on the street, get another job. At some point along the way, you decided, no, I'm going to create a business and do what I want to do. What made you make that decision? Well, 2020 was definitely in okay. Canada um, pretty rough in the job market. So most of my jobs had always been surrounded around people, right? And this now my interaction with people was so controlled. There were so many rules and regulations. I couldn't, they couldn't see my smile. I couldn't get close to them so they could see my eyes. Um, I worked with people in long-term care, people who had dementia. So that okay. was the majority of my career. And thinking, I was on maternity leave actually when 2020 hit. So I was very fortunate for that, that I wasn't kind of engrossed in that. Um, but when I thought about going back and the fact that I'd have to wear a mask and I would have to play bingo with having people in their doorways and do it in the hallway because they weren't allowed to connect with anybody. And I just thought there's no way that I can continue on. It was hard enough working in an institution, but I yeah. would really hold on to the fact that I felt like I was making a difference. I was like every day I went in and I had a goal of making three people smile, bringing a moment of joy to three people and I didn't know how I could do that. I, you know, everyone said I had my magic because I could connect with them like they were my grandparent. If I had a mask on and I had to stay six feet away, there's no way that I'd have any of that magic left. So I, I wanted to feel useful. I felt like, you know, if I continued on that path, I wouldn't be useful. And getting another job also was daunting because pretty much everything in Canada, the rug could be pulled out from under me around that time. If, you know, it, there was, I was really closely watching the organizations that were in my area to see who mandated things and who didn't. And thankfully, there was one, like one organization that fit my skill set that didn't. Um, but I wasn't, I, I was interested in doing the job thing because, or doing the business because I have young kids. And I also didn't at that time want to send them into the school system where they'd have to be masked all day or be taught by people who are, you know, living in fear and full of masks. So I thought a business was sort of the better option for me so that I could feel more stable and know that I was in control of my own future. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, what made you pick the food business? Is, is something to go into. I mean, if, if the timeline lines up to where by the time you were ready to do this, there was still the restrictions in place. I think that obviously opens the door. I know everybody in that space did well. We, we were already selling out of eggs, but we got so many more phone calls during that time. Everybody was looking for alternative sources of food. Was that part of it? It was it just what you wanted to do and you saw the opportunity in the niche. I think it was a little bit of both. We okay. used to have a local food co-op and I was, you know, I'd see the job ads pop up and I think, oh, I'd love to do that, you know, but it was one year contracts. There was no way that I could leave a career that was serving my family mm -hmm. to go out and do that. 
Um, so I'd, I'd always been very interested in the concept of local food and obviously interested in self-sufficiency and that type of thing. And this was a way that I could support that. Um, and then knowing that our co-op had actually shut down in January of 2020 and that there was a big market that was being unmet and that 2020 was fueling that in people, you know, wanted to source local food. So I just put an ad out, I think, before I really had anything. It was a lot of irrational exuberance with my business, for sure. Before I really had any sort of a concept, I just put an ad out, you know, you want a vegetable subscription? And I sold out in, you know, as many as I could do, I sold out. So it was 25 that first summer. And the way that I did it, because I wasn't super um, comfortable with my own level of production at that mm. point in time. So I partnered with a farm that I'd been uh, buying vegetables from for the past five years, partnered with them and got a lot of their goods in and then just backfilled with my product. So then it was it was more able to see, you know, what what kind of volume I need and know that I was going to have that stability to be able to serve the subscribers. And then I had a twist on it. So my uh, father in law, Rob, he built some handcrafted cedar crates. So like six pack kind of things. And we mm -hmm. put six pack of jars in there. And I was washing and chopping the vegetables and making them really accessible to people. So people really enjoyed that. And then I was also doing crack key. I was experimenting with crack key at the same time. So then sometimes there would be a jar with a big thing of lettuce on top. Right. And but it was alive and growing. So it's just so I understand what you're saying. So were you taking things that were not being hydro and basically like you would put them in the jar for freshness with with water so it would be delivered like this big. Yeah, it was, it's like, awesome. I don't think I have one here, but it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I called it a convenience crate. And then, so I'd have washed and chopped carrots in there. Um, sometimes they, and then I'd give recipes. So if I had the carrots sliced in rounds, then there was a stir fry recipe and that type of thing. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So yeah, um, that's how it started. And then that was a way that I could kind of build my skills with the microgreens and the hydroponics alongside building the business side of things. And then in late fall, we decided to pull the trigger and start building a commercial kitchen and hydroponic facility in town. So that's where Par's Jars comes from. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm working on something here for people to see. I'm, I'm on your Instagram right now for those that are watching the video. Uh, let me pull this up. Share this tab instead. This is where it'd be great to have a producer, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. But like, there's an example of what you've got some asparagus. There's some things that are actually like more like canned goods, like pickles and whatever. Uh, and there's some other stuff on there. One shows the crates that you were talking about, like right here. That's really cool. Yeah. And why did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the joys of technology. It's gone. It's in there. Okay. Nope. Nope. It must be because you had a, that's a video. That's yeah, why, dumbass Jack. Yeah, that's okay, so a video. If you go back, <laughs> if you go back to the 2020, like a little earlier in my Instagram, you'll see those crates. Um, yeah. I, I started by partnering with a local store who let me deliver right out of her um, facility. Like she's a flower shop. And so she had a nice big fridge that she uses only for Christmas. So I did my delivery day out of there. And then I also partnered with a um, our Wabagoon Hall who allowed me to use it because COVID, it, everything was shut down. Sure. So they weren't using the community hall at all. So for free, I got to utilize that commercial kitchen space uh, for that first summer and just kind of build up the concept and make sure that I had um, some interested people. That's really, really cool. Um, I also like that the fact that what you did to get started was like, I, it wasn't like, I'm going to build this massive homestead with lots of food and then I'm going to get customers. It was like, there's food, there's people. I'm going to match make the two and backfill. Yeah. 
and, and I can't, way, I can't take credit for production, that. You can move more and more toward your own product, but you can always fill orders and you can take orders now and you can get freaking started because there's so many people. You're like, well, one day and one day becomes never so fast. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that a lot. Like now we do a lot of business, business incubation stuff. And I do see that where it's like, oh, well, when I have this big giant piece of equipment, like that's, that's yeah. when I'm going to get started. And it's like, well, let's just, let's stick some of that food in the bag right now and see if people are buying it. Like, <laughs> no, yeah, we, we call that the toolbox fallacy. If I had this one more thing, then I could do the thing that I really want to do. And I hit on something this week with that. I think on Monday show where I said, like, if you have that, then what you do is do something. And when you do enough of the thing that you say you want to do and you get to the point where you need the thing that you said you needed, then you get to buy it. Yep. I think I'm going to revisit that whole toolbox fallacy and do a show on that from that standpoint of like, and I don't care what it is. Like when I wanted to, uh, to get a better heavy bag, I'm like, well, if I work out every day on the heavy bag I have, mm -hmm. then I get to buy the better heavy bag. Right. Yeah. And like use the thing you you want or you say you need as an incentive. And two things are going to happen. One, you're either going to get started. And when you get to that, realize I don't need to spend the money on this. Or you're going to have the money to spend or the energy that, that makes you realize that it's worth the investment. Whereas if you just keep saying you need it, you'll find reasons not to buy it. You know, you'll yeah. find reasons that you can't do it yet and you're not ready yet. And my website doesn't have the right color green on it or whatever BS people can come up with. But like everybody I know that's been successful has did, done what you did. You decided at some point, I'm going to do this, and whatever I need to make it work, I'll find. Yeah, that's exactly it. And just building skills along the way. You know, I had absolutely no um, ability to be in business. Like, and I just figured there's no better way than immersion therapy and just get, get in yeah. there. And you'll, yeah. I'll come across all of the problems, and I'll learn not to do those problems. And, like, I'll learn not to do that again. And then I'll figure it out that way, and that's the best way to learn. Immersion therapy works, man. Like I remember I took two years of Spanish in high school and it probably helped. But when I got to Panama at my first duty station, um, they had an immersion Spanish course. It was two weeks long and you got the instructor used English. What is that? <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? I have no idea. I'm not going to say what it was for the audio people. That was crazy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> did you see that? I did. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that was. I didn't do it. Anyway, um, the first two days of the class, the teacher would use English sparingly. And then for the rest of the class, there was nothing. You were not allowed to speak English. I learned more in that two weeks than I learned in two years in school. Absolutely. About how to speak Spanish. About, you know, I mean, it was just it was amazing what happened when you had no choice. So it sounds like you probably did run into some hurdles starting a business because you didn't have the experience. Plus, the food business is a place that government people like to stick their fingers in. So were there any specific hurdles that you had to get past to make this work? Um, all of them. I had. Yeah, I hit a lot of hurdles. That's for sure. Uh I think I think a good support network is definitely a way that you can get over that. And I'm lucky enough to have a good support network. Uh, the rules and regulations are insane. And I didn't really realize the amount of rules and regulations, especially when it comes to certain types of products. So eggs and milk, for example, incredibly regulated in our area. And because we are really rural and remote, uh, it's difficult to get your hands on any of that. So I ended up partnering with a farm in Thunder Bay, which is almost like three and a half hours from here. And I did distribution runs there biweekly for 18 months. And I was bringing back their non-homogenized milk in glass bottles and doing a subscription with that. 
And I found so many people were coming in and saying, is it raw? And I said, it's pasteurized less, but it's not raw. It can't be raw. Otherwise, I'm putting myself in huge risk, right? I said, but, you know, I go talk to a farmer. <laughs> like, you don't, you know, I can't, I can't be the middleman for that. But there are farms here that sell their milk into the dairy industry. And, uh, but dealing with all of those regulations is huge. But there's always, mm-hmm. so I found it kind of like a puzzle a little bit. There's usually ways around it. That you can make it work. Uh, I didn't realize that duck eggs, quail eggs, no regulations around that whatsoever. So if we wanted to sell, if I wanted to sell that to my customers, I could do that. So I could buy from the local neighbor. But if it was chicken eggs, they'd have to come out to my farm in uh, in Wabagoon. Uh, but I think the biggest hurdles that I found were not having a detailed reporting system before I started. Okay. So figuring out how I was going to, like, if, I, if I'm going to give advice to people who are starting a business, it's definitely... Make sure you know how you're going to track your sales, how you're going to report and do all of that, because you don't want to end up getting trapped by not having clear reports. And then, you know, the government, the government owes me a bunch of money right now because that first year I didn't really know what I was doing and my reporting system wasn't great. So it's, you know, you don't want to get trapped by that. And also having a deep understanding of business financials. I know you talk a lot about that, Jack, you know, just terminology, kind mm-hmm. of understanding what that is. And I thought, you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm good with a budget, but complex budgets that come along with business and especially with food business, when you have all of these different revenue streams, it gets to be a lot. So you really do need to understand that business terminology when it comes to financials. I, I think one of the real reasons for that is because it's not just so you'll understand what somebody else is saying. It's it, it's so you'll know like what's possible. Like if you know certain things exist, then you can start saying, well, does that have a place in my world? Is there a way that I can leverage or use this concept? And if you don't even know it exists or you hear people say it, but you don't know what it is. So you write it off as like financial nerd speak or whatever. You're, you're, it's like not, it's like having a toolbox with no ratchets in it. Wrenches and, and pliers can do a lot of stuff, but there's things that ratchets just do better and if you don't know a ratchet exists, you're like, why is it so hard to get that damn thing out of there? Well, yeah. do you have a ratchet? What's a ratchet? You don't yeah, have it's sadly like when I hired a 17 year old kid as a farmhand, I had to teach him what a ratchet was. Yay. Public education, right? Like, yeah, that, that says something in and of itself. Um, what made you build a commercial production kitchen and then add the hydro component to it as well? So I think the hurdle of having a licensed facility is something in food that becomes pretty tough. Uh, and I figured if I was willing to take the step to build something like that, then there's the ability to use it as a shared facility between a lot of producers. So I really did see that there's the potential for, you know, economic collapse, whether it's, you know, two years or 20 years. But having that type of a facility in our community would really help to just have food security and then hopefully be able to spur enough producers to start, you know, getting into the business and in a way that makes sense because people can't afford your own licensed kitchen and be able to produce. But if we can all have this production facility that we can share together, then there's, you know, there's a way that we can really withstand whatever is coming. So that was the main, and I think, I don't think I can take credit for that. I'm pretty sure Sal Mayweather talked about that on an episode of Unloose the Goose okay. um, about the commercial production facility. And that really resonated with me. And I thought uh, definitely that's how I can see um, it would help for a community in the future. So are other people using the facility you have now then? So right now we have, yes. So we've built a local food co-op. We've okay. got myself, um, Alicia of the Vintage Kitchen uses it. 
And then we're building an incubation program. So next year, we're going to have between five and 10 producers who are coming in and using this space to be able to do product development. So there's a variety of different products that they want to push through there, but then we can use it as a space so that they can scale up their products and they're not facing the same hurdles of having to figure out how to license their own space. You know, and I think more people in business need to do that is partner with the people you would normally see as your competitors, because especially at your scale, there is no there's no shortage of market. There's a shortage of product, which means the market is hard to find. And I've seen this on much bigger scales here in Texas, because as I've been here since 1993. Wow. OK, I'm old. Anyway, um. I've watched the Metroplex because Dallas Fort Worth is like this giant. The two cities are 18 miles apart and there's a dozen or more cities in between them called the mid cities. And then there's cities on the peripheral. And as this area has grown, it's continued to sprawl outward. So you'll see like a new, let's say a new city. It's like a small town become a city. And as they do that, they'll start building housing developments and they'll start building, you know, apartment complexes and all. And then the restaurants will come. Well, they'll put in like a really good restaurant and you drive by it at lunchtime. There's nobody there. And you drive by it at dinner time, and there's you know five cars in the parking lot. But all of a sudden, like once one comes, then another one comes. And you know what we call them restaurant rows. I don't know if that's a Texas term or if it exists. In other words, and then all of a sudden they're all packed. Like you can't get a table on Friday night. You can't get a table anywhere at lunchtime unless you've prearranged the table. Because now that there's choice and now that there's a large market, now it's got eyeballs and it's got interest. And it also has the whole effect of, well, there's a bunch of places there. We'll go see what we feel like when we get there. Where if it's just, you know, a steakhouse and you're not in the steak tonight, you just don't go. And so then things don't look busy and then nobody talks. So there's no business. But once you build out kind of this conglomerate, well, then it's an attraction point. Like the 80s, it was 70s and 80s. It was malls. And then they died. But I, I think that effect happens. And when you have more to pick from, that's why there will always be more people at a farmer's market than one guy's individual stall, you know, like farm to table stall at the edge of their farm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the, that's the basis of having a collaborative online marketplace, right, is that we're all putting our stuff into one area. And then that's going to help draw people there because it's not just me producing vegetables or selling dairy or eggs. It's everybody selling the whole thing so they can get all of their groceries in one space. It also makes you let I think people think that would make you more of a target. It makes you less of a target. Now you got to go jack with more people. Yeah. Right. More people have combined resources. More people have more pushback. More people have more connections. More people have more roots in the community. When it's one person, it's easy to go after the one Amish farmer that dares sell raw milk. But when it's a, a co-op and a group of people, it's a little bit more politically tenuous. Right. For the, the, the busy bees, the, the, the political Karens, the, the bureaucratic Karens. And I think most bureaucrats are Karens. They want to come in and. And, and jack up what you're trying to do, I guess it's to justify their existence. They don't have anything actually important to be doing. Yeah, there's definitely strength in numbers. It makes it makes a big difference for, um, you know, overcoming all of these hurdles for sure. Tell me a little bit about your, your crack key grow off. That's the way that you termed it. So uh, you're, are you doing a fairly large scale crack key production and using jars or how are you doing this? 
Yeah, it's a decent, it's a decent size. It's definitely not made to be a, like a commercial operation, but it's yeah. more, we wanted to create it to be able to, as more of a teaching tool. So okay. in just, you know, showing people exactly this is what the roots look like. This is how basic you can make something and really be able to get food. That was the understanding. So my husband put it together with just two by fours and triple pane plastic or triple lined plastic. We did the corrugated signboard over top. And we have just holes, spaced them out accordingly based on the okay. crops that we wanted to grow. And then we just he built a frame up top with the Brina lights and moved them up and down. Something really, really simple. We don't even aerate it. And we find that stuff grows fantastic. So we do it in the three-inch net cups. So we can just take the net cup right out and stick it right into a jar and deliver it okay. that way. All right. Yeah. And then for sometimes we also, we found it was more profitable to not do that and more yeah. profitable to sniff around the outside and then be able to offer cut salads and, and jars of lettuce and cut and come again. Yeah. Cause then we yeah. can get three cycles out of it and we did make them quite large with a lot of depth. So once we get to that third cycle, it starts to get a little bit bitter. Um, but, but we can get like, I can pretty much get months out of one round of planting. I was just say that makes sense. So if you, if you're going to do something over the top, you kind of deliver it in the jar, but you're not growing it because growing in jars is great for like a school project or to get started and learn how, but it is not efficient. It does not right? work very well. And I'm not a huge guy. Like everything doesn't need to be perfectly efficient, but in business we need efficiency yeah. because the lack of efficiency results in lack of profit, which means the more you sell, the faster you go bankrupt. Yep. Like that, yep. That's something people have a very hard, if I just sell more, so you're losing money selling now. Yeah. Okay. Are you losing money selling now because you have a fixed expense or you have a variable expense? Variable. Okay. So you're going to go broke faster if you sell more. And they, yeah. they look at you with like, okay, now you need to go to Investopedia and get on the financial term of the day and brush up on your economics understanding because you don't understand. And um, it took me a long time to realize people didn't get that. Mm -hmm. Like I, I really always thought like, well, doesn't everybody know that? And the answer is no. Like there was a lot of things I guess coming up with an entrepreneurial father and a family that was all in hunting and fishing my whole life, I thought everybody knew how to skin a deer. Who doesn't know how to skin it? I went to a school that closes on the first day of deer season. Who, what, what man doesn't know how to skin a deer? Apparently a lot of them. Oh, yeah. And I think when you get into a world of education, you have to like take a step back from what you know and realize if everybody knew what you knew, there, you wouldn't have any value to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing you have things to teach. You wouldn't be so successful, no you doubt. Would, no, you wouldn't, you know. Um, so you decided to kind of come into this running a food hub rather than a resales business. And, well, when I go ahead. When I started, it was actually it was more of a resales type model, okay. right? I was buying these um, vegetables from everywhere. It just started with the one partner farm. But as I went to scale up, it became, you know, when I was doing that dairy run, I was also hitting up a greenhouse that was in that same area, bringing back that stuff so that I had the tomatoes early in the season and late in the season, that type of thing. But I did find that centralizing in that way was kind of taking me away from my goals. It became a lot of complex administrative work. Um, and figuring out just and, and I held the bag for all of the vegetables, right? If mm. I didn't sell them, then I'm holding the bag for at one point, it ended up being seven different farms. All the vegetables were in my possession and I had to figure out how to preserve them or waste them. And I didn't want to waste them. So no. we worked like how to preserve them all the time. And then um, so I ended up getting a couple people on staff to help me do that. But then there was absolutely zero money left, right? When you start paying staff. 
and food margins are really tight. So it just it, the model wasn't really working. It was very bottlenecked, I found. Okay. And so I, I thought that it would be a lot more beneficial because the reason that I'm partnering with these farmers is I want to see everybody succeed. So a cooperative just kind of made more sense for me. And the food hub model um, really resonated to be able to decentralize things because I, I didn't want to be a central. I didn't want parse jars to be able to um, scale and be a big grocery operation or anything like that. I just wanted to see local th- food thrive. So a co-op and a food hub seem to make the most sense to be able to do that without having one person kind of sitting in the middle. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, how do you feel starting something like a nonprofit food organization in, in Canada, which as much as we have overriding government here in the United States, you have even more of it. How do you how do you feel that helps to kind of push back against the whole move, to move toward globalization and centralization? I think it really it empowers individuals. And that's the biggest thing is when you have empowered individuals that are building strong networks, just like we talked about, is that you're going to have a community that can push back when you know push comes to shove. And if we don't do it now, it becomes really difficult in times of chaos to try to figure out how to organize that stuff. So if we work towards it today, then if something does happen, we're able to really figure out how to mitigate against it. And I think just the organization of exchange mechanisms is getting more complex with, you know, people are used to being able to order online and just stop and pick something up or get it delivered. So the more we can try to figure out those complex um, sort of logistics now, while things aren't so complex, then hopefully we can kind of use those same platforms if things do get really difficult to be able to um, pick pick up where we left off. Like we use Local Line as, uh, which is a Canadian company to do the sort of decentralized inventory. Everybody has their own kind of page that they upload to and then they share to the food hub and then they can share to any real food hub. So we can have one in Thunder Bay. There's a food hub that's popping up next year because of this um, and they're going to be able to share their inventory there. And then we have value chain coordinators that are working on distribution between the two to figure out the logistics because it's a you driving three and a half hours uh, there and back in a day definitely isn't a profitable way to do it. But there are ways that we can do backhauling and piggybacking on other runs to make that make more sense. Um, and I think I think with not for profit food organizations, there is a lot of money out there and there's a lot of support if you want to go through the granting process. It's definitely not something for everybody. Um But in Canada, it becomes difficult to do private business because I think our culture is very conditioned to just getting things, especially when it comes to like education and food. Everything's so subsidized that it's it's really hard for them to wrap their head around what you want me to pay $40 for a workshop. Like why I should be able to get this for free because workshops everywhere else are free. Why aren't they free here? So I I think in figuring out how we can kind of access that now, whether it's something that, you know, I don't want to depend on grants, but if they are there and we can access them now to sort of build this foundation and build this layer while we have the time, then it's probably something that's a worthwhile cause. Yeah, definitely. Well put. I, I run into that even here with this entitlement attitude of why does this cost money? Um, you know, you put together a course or something, you put it out and it's electronic. Well, it doesn't cost you anything. Well, it, it cost me like 80 hours to make it. Right. And then like, I expect that you want customer service here. Like it's not just here. Like if you just want to watch videos, that's what YouTube's for. Right. But if you actually want like assistance and answers and help and, 
you know, some level of a, maybe a, or the course of certification or something, then you have to pay for that. Like this, there is this like free lunch attitude. And I think one of the problems is people under, don't understand there is no such thing as free. There is either you paid for it and you don't know it on the back end with your taxes or somebody else paid for it for you. Right. There's no free like nothing. Humans do not expend energy for no reason unless it's to play video games or something like for entertainment. Like if I'm going to actually do work, then I have to see something at the end of it. And either you're going to pay me or the state's going to pay me or some third party's going to pay me. But I don't work for free. Nobody tends to work for free. I guess if you. If you're the kind of person who becomes so independently wealthy, you go out and do what other people see as work, but you see as recreation, sure. But the world does not run on that, and it's not going to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Our our culture is really, you know, I think Canada probably a lot more than in the States is used to that because we do pay an exorbitant amount of money for taxes. So we expect yeah. that that's going towards services for us. And a lot of people don't see a lot of those services slipping away and being a lot harder to access um, for people to use that are just trying to do good. You know, we're trying to build food systems, but the granting process is incredibly complex, very difficult and really time consuming. And how nice yeah. would it be if we could just have, you know, convince people that it's worthwhile for them to invest in these things themselves rather than us spend, you know, two months filling out an application to be able to get money for a project. Yeah. I have heard somebody say when you, when you, if you're going to apply for grants, ask for like a ridiculous amount of money. Ask for as much, make it as it's just ridiculously high as much money as you ask for, because they might come back with, well, we'll only give you, you know, half, and then you could say you'll take it. And I don't know. I think the problem is now we're in, involving the state. There are some, like I've had several different people on from an organization within uh, the FDA down here called NRCS, and as government agencies go, they're probably one of the most benign entities out there, and they do some decent things. But even that, like, there is this, like, now I've invited an agent of the state into my backyard. I've, in, I've let the camel in the tent. Maybe it's just the camel's nose, but we know how that proverb ends. The whole camel will be in the tent soon. And it is better, if you can, to do things on your own. Absolutely. Um, but again, and that requires that a business needs customers. Yeah. And then customers want things, but they don't want to pay for them. And that's, that's an education process. Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. And we're working with someone, uh, Northern Foodways Development Network, and their, you know, our goal, goal is to both be self-sustaining so that their services, because they're more, their value chain coordination yeah. and their services will really enable this to be a more private thing rather than, so the businesses themselves, you know, us and our co-op, we're paying them to help coordinate this stuff because we're businesses. We don't have the time to be able to do all of this logistics work and be able to connect. And that's why co-ops fail a lot of the time is that it's volu- you have all of this volunteer work and there's no way that you can manage it. But if we have, and, and just the business supports, a lot of yeah. business supports around here aren't really amazing, but this, you know, this private company, there's a way that we can work together to get the, the consulting that we need for us all up to scale and then hopefully make it more sustainable and not have to worry about involving them anymore. That's great. Um, now, I have found in not just food business, but especially food businesses, the press is always around federal government, central government, whatever, came in and made your life miserable. But in reality, I found for every time that actually happens, you know, in the United States, it's from FDA. I don't know what the organization is in Canada, but I'm sure there's a counterpart, an alphabet agency that does that stuff. Nine times out of ten, it's local governments 
that cause problems. Some blue hair makes a phone call, talks to another blue hair on the phone. She sends a pocket protector out from the department of making you sad and they, they cause problems. So what has it been like dealing with local politics and government and any kind of funding or anything like that as well? When you clearly are anarchist leaning, I saw a picture of you with the big anarchist shirt on and I'm like, this, this girl's going to be fun. Uh, but, you know, have you had any issues with the local uh, government agencies? So it definitely is the local government agencies that are the ones that I've come into contact with. So it's the health okay. unit are the ones that kind of govern. If As long as I'm staying within Ontario, then it's the health unit that governs that part. Um, I'll, the thing that I have realized is that they don't understand the rules themselves. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really know. You have to come up with a solution for them. So if they're saying, no, you can't do that. You can't just explain yourself and, oh, okay, they'll see your way. You have to really justify it and show um, show show your work, I guess, and just show them what the solution could be. And then usually you can get over it. But they do. I, I, I find it very challenging. But I think if I'm just, you know, if, if I'm just on my homestead teaching my kids and I'm not doing this work, well, someone else is going to do the work and then they're not going to be able to plant those seeds in these circles and they're not going to be able to say the things that, you know, throws people off in a meeting. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks or last week. And I had said, uh, they said, oh, you know, we're trying to make this regulation so that institutions are forced to procure local food. And then somebody else was talking about, which which is happening. And then somebody else was talking about incentivizing. And I'm like, well, I always preserve, I always prefer incentives instead of force. And then yeah. it was like everybody just kind of went quiet, <laughs> like looking yeah. around. What, what's this girl about? And, uh, it, it, you know, and I think you need people in there. If we leave everybody to their own devices and you don't have people who are focused on individuals that are within these systems, then we're going to end up, you know, they're going to encapsulate the food system, too. So sometimes it's just worth the effort to get in there and make sure that the voices are heard for individuals. Well, enforcing institutions to buy local food or resell local food is in incredibly limiting in and of itself because there's only so much market there. That's the problem. And, and what they're always going to push back with is, well, we can't. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, so you can give some more sort of mandate. Like we have a mandate in a lot of places here where like 20% of electricity must come from renewables. Well, there's not 20% of renewable energy available. But, you know, a utility can go out and build its own generation facility to comply and they'll get government money to do it. When you start moving into something like this, which by its very nature now must be, decentralized because if you want the person in Atlanta to use local food, that's going to be different than the person in Savannah. They're not going to be. And then that leads to, well, what is local? Yeah. Is local inside the state. I, I don't know if you're in a state like Maryland, that's not very big or uh, Connecticut. It's pretty local. But if you're in Texas, it's freaking a thousand miles from one tip of the state to the other. That, that's not local. So what is local? How do we define local? And then who gets but and then all of a sudden the lobbyists come in and they create, you know, the local food co-op, which is really getting food from everywhere. They say it's local. And they fill the niche and that screws all the local producers out of the thing that was supposed to protect them. Like we had some some regulation on bees and honey that I won't get into, but it was the the Texas Beekeepers Association was opposed to it. Well, the Texas Beekeepers Association was big honey. It had nothing to do with all the guys running around Texas taking care of five to 50 hives. None of those guys were part of it. It was a big food conglomerate. So 
Yeah, incentive I like. Force always fails in the end. Always. Yeah. Even yeah, if it, it makes succeeds, no sense. it fails to do what it's supposed to do as marketed, right? Because uh, we're back to a Stanford beer. Uh, the, the purpose of the system is what it does, yeah. right? And that is the purpose of the mandate to give another avenue for the big company to take over. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it, and it's 20%. It's the same thing what's happening here. So you have to procure local, which is within Ontario and that's 20% local. And it's just, there's no way that people in Dryden can procure 20% local. So then rather than trying to purchase from me, which is literally the half a block away yeah. purchasing their salad greens from me, well, no, they need to do 20% of their entire budget. So they're going to buy beef and they're going to buy it in an easy way. So they're going to go down to Southern Ontario and they're going to buy yeah. that beef because that's what makes sense. So if we can do more of this localized decentral decentralized yeah. way, then we can really go into those institutions and be like, here, this is all the stuff that we can produce. We're doing this business incubator. What else do you need? Like we'll, yeah. we'll get some other stuff up and running and we can really do it on a case by case basis rather than making local as a term. That's just all up on. They'll make like, this is well, we can't fix this. All we can do is try. Well, let's see if a redneck hippie duck farmer can come up with a solution to this that would be incentive-based and not cost anybody except the state money and money in, not money out, um, and would be completely decentralized and leave the decisions up to the customer and the producer. Oh, I have an idea. What if you set up to $250 of food a month produced locally, and all you have to do is save your receipts to prove that you bought it locally, uh, was 100% tax deductible? Yeah, there you go. That's that's the incentives for that's sure. Why I'll never be in office. I won't be a dog catcher somewhere because if you have solutions, they don't want you. They want yeah. to hand you a 50 to a thousand page bill and say, here, put your name on this. And here's the money for the uh, to get it into the committee or whatever. They don't want it. Like, is that such a simple solution? And if it's too much, then make it less. If it's not enough, make it more. I mean, it can be any number you want. But when they, it's isn't it interesting? All these mandates are always 20 percent. Yeah. Like the, the, to your food mandate they want is 20% and the electrical mandate that they want here in Texas is 20% for uh like what did that number come from? Yeah. I don't know. Why something. is it all of a sudden uniform everywhere? Centralization, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because of boilerplate cut and paste bullshit. That's why. Yeah, it's probably the number that was palatable within, yeah. you know, some it sounds reasonable. It sounds like we've done something, but we're not too onerous. Some yeah. focus group somewhere on Manhattan Avenue freaking came up with that. And I guarantee it. I exactly. guarantee that. Um, I don't. What, what skills and resources are helpful if you want to start up a co-op, a hub or a business? I mean, you have no idea what you're doing. Where, where do you where do you begin? What's available? Um, definitely networking people, um, building community, figuring out how to do that. That makes sense in a way to you. So just things like joining a board, go and join a board. Um, you'll start talking, you know, I joined the horticultural society around here. I started talking to a lot of other people that gardened and then we started, you know, coming up with different projects and initiatives that we could really push forward. And then you develop those meaningful relationships. Right. And if you're just, you're just making those relationships and you're moving, the stuff will come to you, the things that are supposed to come, right? And then you can kind of work from there. Resources, like I said before, it's just making sure you have a financial understanding and a reporting system are definitely important for this type of thing. 
And then partnerships. So figuring out other people that are trying to do the exact same thing that you are and then collaborating with them, much like what we've done at our 807 Food Co-op, collaborating with Northern Food Waste Development Network, because we both saw a big gap in just the ability for co-ops to survive because it's full of business owners that don't have the capacity to be able to do this administrative work. And then they come in and they help sort of build those bridges between us and the customers. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a big need for decentralized centralization. It's kind of what I'm hearing there. Like, we need these co-ops, and the co-op doesn't just have to be about supply. It can be about management. Like, the, the way a co-op works is, let's say we have a store. that, pe- that like I'm talking like a basic ag co-op here where people buy their feed, their fertilizer, all that, and they use collective bargaining not in the union way, in the in the customer way, to say, we have a lot of money, so we want a deal. But Farmer Bill, he doesn't want to like get this giant shipment of shit every month. He wants to buy what he needs as he needs it, so we need his son Billy to work at the co-op counter, so when somebody goes in the co-op, there's somebody there to get his stuff and to manage the store and make sure everything's taken care of and nobody steals it. So the co-op combines their money, and some of that money goes to pay a wage. Well, that wage could be paying somebody that's more like a book, a collective bookkeeper, because a lot of small business people, you know, you mentioned it on record keeping and stuff like that. And I know there's a lot of people out there like, screw the government. Well, you, you got to The whole purpose of a business is to make more money and pay less taxes at the same time. That's just to get that out there. You're better off doing that unless it's a real small time fence post style business. Right. Um, but the other side of it is you need the data. You need the data to run an effective business. Why do you think they've had so many people taken down like mafia bosses and shit? Because they find the private books. Why do you think the guy that's running a loan shark operation or a bookie business or something like that's keeping books? Because he needs it or his business, he has no idea if it's performing well or not. So they need that data. You as a business owner need that data. And that's something that can kind of go into this type of collective work as well, where maybe I can't afford a really great accountant, but maybe all of us can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just the coordination, like my job right now, I'm uh, coordinating the 807 Food Co-op. And so that, you know, people don't want to do that administrative work. They want to be out in the field and they want to be farming. They want to do that stuff. So this is a way that they can sort of pay somebody to be able to um, take on all of that administrative layer, which is not something that I love to do either. But I was I was the person for the job at the right time. So. Yeah. And I think that, like, you can also get out of being a purist. Like I had one customer when we were doing a lot more egg production. Uh, we used to have about 150 layers on the property, so we produced a lot. And he was doing a kind of co-op business model, taking orders from their customers and delivering like a tub of food to their customers. But it wasn't like it wasn't like a uh, I can't think of what it's called now, where it's like you uh, where you buy in at the beginning, you get a share every like you literally said this week I want these things out of their catalog, and. Um, he he did really well, and one of the reasons he did well is their whole premise was we do everything we can to provide everything that's possible from local producers, but nobody here grows bananas. So you want bananas? We have organic bananas. You want pineapple? We have organic pineapple. Those do not come from Texas. And that way people could order a week worth of food 
and actually get everything they want instead of having this delivery and then still need to go to Publix or Albertsons or Kroger's or Safeway or whatever. And that's definitely what I found is people would come in and they'd say, oh, I pretty much got everything that I need here. But it, but they always go somewhere after that. They're always yeah. going to the grocery store because there is you know, those, those imports that we just don't have. And the ability to really build more of this distribution, I think it's going to make it a lot easier for us to bring in some of those imports and then making sure that we have the capacity within the commercial kitchen to push things forward if they don't sell. So bananas can yeah. go bad really quickly if they're centralized, especially, right? So just making I've sure that... i noticed you with a cup, too. Most people drink coffee. I, I can't grow it in Texas. I know you damn well can't grow it in Canada. Yeah. Right? But you can locally roast. I mean, like, thinking that way starts to expand because what we call having a customer walk in buy stuff, and there was more stuff they would have bought from you, but you didn't have it to sell it to them, we call that leaving money on the table. Yeah. And leaving money on the table is a great way to send your business straight toward bankruptcy eventually or to create a business that is so dependent on weekly cash flow that it's not a business, it's a job that you have to work twice as hard at. Yeah. If you want to run a business, you need to optimize all the opportunities within that business. And that's something, again, that's hard to get across to a lot of people. Like a single product business is almost a guaranteed failure. Like we sold eggs, but if we were going to keep doing it long term, we would have brought in other product. We had started to do microgreens and stuff like that. And when my, when my wife started homeschooling the kids, we were just like, nah, we don't need to do this anymore. Like we, we I, I know what my primary business is. But if I'm going to be in, in an ag business and I have eggs, my eggs are a loss leader, really. Like even if I'm making money on them, I'm never going to make a living on them. So then I need to put collateral product with it. Yeah, you need a lot of different revenue streams when it comes to food. If you're if you're only going to do food and you're not going to do some sort of content or you're not going to do some sort of service, then it becomes it becomes really difficult to make a living on those tiny margins and you need more revenue streams and you need to know how to track those revenue streams and make sure you understand which of your products are profitable and which aren't. Um do you have any advice for people that are just looking to take more initiative in their community? Maybe not specific to the same way you're doing it, but want to start building community and cohesion and local parallel economies and things like that. I think you just need to think about what it is that you love and what drives you. What what makes you passionate? Are you passionate about homeschooling? Are you passionate about local food, about self-sufficiency, about, you know, wild wild bushcraft? What are you passionate about? And then go and find where other people are that are also passionate about the same thing and go and start having those conversations, meeting those people. Um, we have a really good homeschooling group around here that's just incredible and filled with like-minded individuals that are all very different, like our Basic values of, you know, freedom are definitely there, but then everybody has such different walks of life. It's incredible to be able to connect with them. And then same with the local food community and the trapping and hunting community. And you just figure out what it is that you're interested in and then go and lean into that. And then everything will come to you. Yeah, there are things I miss about the northeastern United States. There's a lot I don't. There's a lot more government up there and there's a lot more congested areas and all but like one of the things we had up in rural PA was um, what they called rotting gun clubs, which were basically bars that people went and drank at. And you paid a membership to be a member of the bar. And it was like a co-op because it reduced the cost of the booze. But what they really were were gathering places for people that had a common thing. And that was hunting and fishing. And so it wasn't so much you went there and then y'all got drunk and went out and shot deer together and shot each other because you're drunk. 
It was more that you met people who were interested in what you were interested in. What I've always said, business, personal, whatever, always lead with the relationship. And I do miss that. And I I look at it around here and I, I get why. Like everything around here, as far as hunting anyway, is paid. There's, I mean, there is very little public hunting land and the public hunting land there is, is not really worth hunting on, in my opinion, unless you go out to West Texas and then it's, you're spending a week before you come back at least, or it ain't worth going out there. Um, and so I can see why that's not, but uh, this seems like there's an opportunity for that because there's lots of fishing, Mm -hmm. right? There's lots of fishing. So since that's the case, you know, like there's a way to work that angle and it doesn't matter what it is. It's just common interest. Like you're saying, like when you said homeschool, I'm like, you know, we've tried to create some little homeschooling groups. My wife's only willing to put so much energy into it. I mean, we're both basically retired at this point, other than I do this show. Um, but it seems like if somebody really wanted to and created some sort of a homeschool co-op that wasn't even really about, you know, direct classroom stuff, but like an activity based thing. And there was enough kids there to get that social engagement that is a little bit missed. Right. And it was twenty five bucks for, you know, you drop them off for four hours once a week. In as long as it's good. We in like that. I've been trying to make that happen here for two years. I have been trying and people are just, I had to, so I had a huge list of people when the masks were mandated, huge list of people. Everyone's interested in doing the co-op. And then uh, as soon as the masks got pulled, everybody said, Oh no, I'm just, it's easier to send the kids back to school. People don't learn. I know. And then the homeschooling crew like that we've got, they're amazing. They're all like pretty much my best friends at this point. We went through everything together in the past few years. Um, but they're not, they don't need that, right? They've got the one parent who stays at home the whole time. They need that social interaction. So we go out and we do the group activities together, but it's always parents. The parents are there, right? Yeah. So that childcare aspect becomes yeah. really difficult for our family to figure out how to navigate because I do like the work that I do and I want to continue doing the work that I do. Yeah. But it is pretty difficult having young kids around and making sure that everybody's getting their needs met. Yeah, it's also like the one of the things you'll run into with local government in the States is is it a child care service? Cause then it needs to be licensed, right? Exactly. So it can't be a daycare. So a certain number of parents have to be there, et cetera. But cause I'm telling you, there is like my wife would pay the 25 bucks for four hours a week to be left alone. Yep. Right. <laughs> I mean, really? But I could also see her as the kind of person that will, will maybe one week a month. I'm there. Because yep. I'm not again, I'm not talking about a bunch of kids sitting in front of computers doing their schoolwork. I'm talking more about like go play laser tag or something like that, you know, just to get that social engagement and broaden their networks. Because what we're talking about here is broadening our networks. And I'm all for kids having adults in their networks because you become more like the people you spend your time around. This is one of my problems with public school. I think if you spend your time around all 12 year olds, you continue to act like a 12 year old. Yeah, you might continue to act like a 12 year old when you're 24. You just might like you might all stay together all the time and never grow up. But I think there is a good place for kind of a push pull approach with child development. And, you know, we have them in things like gymnastics and stuff like that. But I'd, I'd love to see more of that. And I'd love to see what you're doing with food spread out into other niches. Absolutely. I have the co-op, a homeschool co-op completely developed. I just need to find the people that are interested in it because we're, um, it is hard. And I found, cause this year is the, my son went to school this year, my oldest. And I, just because I needed to get, I said, we're on a one to two year plan. 
where they can go yeah. to school. There's no more kind of hysteria surrounding everything. Yeah. He can really learn to read. I can drill into this stuff and make it make sense for our family. Yeah. And uh, so he's there. And I had asked him because I really didn't want to send him, but I did. And I said, what's the what? How are you feeling about school? And he said, well, I'm really lonely. And I thought to myself, like, we just spent two years at home, yeah. <laughs> like seeing a handful of families. How are you lonely? And um, he said, like, they don't let me talk. I, I can't talk. And, yeah. and I said, yeah. well, yeah. I said, OK, yeah. well, what about recess? And he's like, well, everyone just wants to run around because it's, you know, they're pent up. They just they're running around. So he feels lonely and isolated in school. And then it, th- it makes me think, too when we are homeschooling and we go out to these group activities with our friends and he picks, you know, there's one or two boys, they go and they sit in the corner and they're talking for two hours. Yeah. And we just, you know, we get together for three hours, let it all be interest led. And that's, that's a kid developing real relationships. Right. And that's, that's like solving problems together. They're doing all of these different things that they just don't get the opportunity to do in school. Well, isn't that a silver bullet objection to homeschool? How are they ever going to socialize? And what's the first thing that, Teacher tells the kid, shut up, sit in your thing, and you're not here to socialize. Yeah. Okay. How's yeah, it was that? really it was really eye-opening to me that and, and I'm grateful that we got those few years to kind of see the difference and see yeah. how easy it was for him to develop relationships when they were on his own terms and how difficult it seems to be for him to develop relationships in the school type environment. Well, I mean when you go to they say it's the real world. No, when I go to work in a job in an office no one says sit next to Bill and be friends with Bill and don't talk to him. That's yeah. not how it works, right? People freely associate, even if you're in a large company, you probably have a handful of people that you actually have relationships with, even if they're not beyond the office, even if they're at the office. You probably don't talk to everybody you work with every day. And if you do, it probably means you're not doing your job and you're going to get your ass fired. So, like, nothing about public education is remotely like the real world. The only place in the real world that's like public schools is minimum security prisons. Yeah, or public schools, like adults yeah. in public schools. Yeah. 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 Oh, the, oh, teachers, don't get me started. I'll have lots of hate mail coming. Uh, <laughs> how can folks in the TSP audience support the work that you're doing? Because it sounds like very important work to me. Yeah, definitely go to parstars.ca. So I've got a website up there. Um, You can keep in touch. We've got a newsletter pop up right when you go on there. So we can keep in touch that way. And as things develop, you know, maybe there'll be opportunities that you're interested in. Um, I did a line of ABC gear on there so that it's more designated towards your audience. I've been listening for 12 years. So I think I have a good understanding of the type of people that listen to you. So hopefully you guys like a few things that I put on there. And then just feel free to... um, follow me on social or I think I have my lightning. I think I sent over my lightning address. If you want to zap me. And you're on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Noster. So I have all that stuff already in the audio show notes that go along with this episode. Uh, We're still live right now. If you're watching us live and that means it'll probably be about 30, 40 minutes before the audio goes up. There's a link. The video notes below, and you can click on that link and get over there. But if you click it right now, it won't work because we're not done yet, um, unless we are. If it's not live, then it's Memorex, and you can click the link, and you'll get on over there. Bobby, it's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed having you with us today. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Jack. Well, guys, I appreciate you being with us today. I want to say real quick, thanks to Anarchy for the $10 super sticker. Uh, that he sent our way during the discussion. I really appreciate that. 
And I want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support my show and the work that we do is do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I got a unique and somewhat expensive item of the day for you today, but I got a price alert on it going on sale. It's the TP-Link Deco AXE 5400 Tri-Band 6E Mesh System. Yeah, that sounds very complicated. It's actually not. Anybody can install it, even me. Uh, I found this product when I realized I needed to upgrade my network solution. I I had this router that's right here uh, running my network for a long time. It's even on T-SPAS. At the time that it came out, I called it the best router for the most people, not the best router. And it probably was, but technology improves and mesh technology is the way to go if you want to extend the range of your wireless network in your home. And if you look at the screen, if you're watching anyway, these these things are kind of cool looking. They, they kind of look to me like, I don't know, instead of a network device, I see that kind of more like something that You'd, you'd, you'd have essential oil diffusing out of that's kind of the whole deco thing. So when you set this on a shelf somewhere or something, it doesn't look like an obnoxious piece of electronics. These things work. They work really well. You use one of them to replace your router. You just toss your router and one of them becomes the master unit and the router itself. Then they can either be connected with hardline. You can actually run uh, cat five, cat six, cat six, whatever you want data cable to connect them hardline to each other to extend your network that way. Since my shop is a giant metal Faraday cage, that's what we did for the one in the shop. We ran a hard line all the way out there. You can also let them connect to each other wirelessly and you don't have to do anything. When you set it up and turn it on, once you have the first one set up, it finds its place, figures out the closest uh, friendly unit and it connects to it, and then your device, like your, your phone, your laptop, whatever, when you walk through your house, it just finds the, the strongest signal and connects there, and everything is run for you. You get a little app, you put it on your phone, follow the instructions. I'm, I'm telling you, I know when you hear things about networks and all, there's all kinds of fancy words. It sounds complicated. Uh, there's people sometimes when I'm talking, I say, Jack, speaking nerd again. Nothing here is hard. People think I'm really technical. I'm a hardware guy. I am not a configuration guy. I'm not a software guy. If I can do this, you can do this. If you can install an imprinter on your network, you can put this in, and it just works. It also has a guest network. You can shut it on and off. We used it for the workshop. Had 70 people pounding my network. Never had to turn off the guest network. Generally, we turn the guest network off during streaming. Now, one thing I got to say here. If you have a shitty internet connection, this will not fix that. This is your local network in your home. So your bottlenecks always that ISP connection out, but there's something really important I want you to know about today. Really, really important. I've talked a lot about Amazon Renewed. If you look down here in the PSS, right, the PS and the PSS, there is in the Renewed store rate today, you can get these as singles, doubles, or triples. And if you need more in the future, you can buy individual ones and just set them up. There's nothing to it. They're in the Renewed store today, and they are on sale at a deep discount, uh, even over the sale price that's there. Uh, if you look at, let's say, the three-pack, it's uh, 289 I think the sale price on the new is 369 so it's a, you know, not quite a, what, 80 bucks off by buying the Renewed. And if you've heard me talk about Renewed before, it is it is not 
what you think. It is not that they fixed it, it broke, whatever. It's just returns. That's all it is. So it's effectively new product. There's a link there where you can learn more about the renewed program as well. Um, and one more thing. I bought the top end uh, deco model. Like this is the best you can get. You may not need that. You may not be running a business. There's a link in the write-up too to all of the stuff in the deco line. If you want to go lower end, but you want the performance of a mesh network, feel free to do it. It, it is just one of the damn best pieces of networking equipment I've ever used. With that, guys, I am going to wrap up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be an expert council Q&A show, and then we'll have a Friday flashback. We'll come back next week, and we'll do it all over again. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way